Well, this morning, as we look at the scripture for our time this morning, we're going to do a little Bible study on heaven again. This is the third and last part in this little trilogy on heaven. There's so many things to say. When I originally preached this, I preached about eight hours worth of, of heaven. So you're getting a very condensed version of it. I'm trying to sort of cut down and get you just the basic things. But this morning, I want us to continue to answer some questions about heaven. We talked about where is heaven, what is heaven like, and uh, what are going to be our relationships when we get there and those kinds of things. This morning, I want us to answer two more questions. Question number one, what will be our relationship to God? What will be our relationship to God in heaven? This, of course, is absolutely essential. If we're going to understand heaven, we have to understand this. And I'll give you several components. First of all, we will be with him. We will be with him. That's the first thing we learn regarding our relationship to God. In heaven, we're going to be with God when we get there. In 1 John chapter 3, or chapter 1 rather, verse 3, you remember those familiar words in which John says, and he's really speaking regarding the essence of being a Christian. He says, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you that you also may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. Christianity is a relationship with God in which we enjoy fellowship. But when we get to heaven, that fellowship will be full, unhindered, and more wonderful than anything we've ever experienced. John 17, verse 24, and I'm going to be jumping around this morning. We've got to cover a lot of ground, and you might want to jot down some notes, at least on the verses, so you can sort of track back through. John 17, 24, Jesus is praying uh, to the Father in anticipation of His crucifixion. And in this great prayer, verse 24, He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom Thou hast given Me, that would be believers, be with Me where I am. He says, I want believers in heaven, Father. Why? In order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus said, Father, I want believers in heaven. I want them there with me and with you so they can behold my glory, that eternal glory that I had before the foundation of the world. And so he is saying, it is my prayer that believers will be in heaven to behold eternal glory. And that is exactly the case. We will be with Christ, we will be with God, and we will see eternal glory. John 14, moving back, a very familiar text, emphasizes again our fellowship with God. Not only will we be with Him and see His glory, but in John 14, Jesus said, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, Jesus is saying the Father has a house, and that house has many rooms. There's nothing to say there are mansions in heaven. That's a, 
really a mistranslation in the old King James. There's one house with many rooms, and we're all living in the Father's house, not our own house. God has a very large house with many rooms. We will all be in it. Jesus is there preparing it for us. Verse 3, by the way, is probably the most significant or one of the most significant verses for a pre-tribulation rapture given anywhere in Scripture. Because it says, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Where is Jesus now? In heaven. So he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to take you to where I am. That means when he comes for his church, he's going to take us to heaven. If you have a post-tribulational rapture, that's a problem. Because when Jesus comes at the end of the tribulation, he doesn't go back to heaven. He comes at the end of tribulation time and sets up his kingdom where? On earth. Very hard to read a post-tribulational rapture into this verse. Jesus is saying, I want to come and get my people and take them to myself to the place where I now am. And so again, the emphasis is on fellowship. Not many mansions. We're not living four blocks down and eight blocks to the right. We're living in the Father's house. Intimacy and fellowship. So the essence of heaven then is we will be with God. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We will be with Christ in heaven, both the Father and the Son, of course. In 1 Thessalonians, you remember that the Apostle Paul is writing about the rapture. And he's very specific about one thing that is really the heart of this. It says, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We're on our way back to heaven. Same thing John 14 said. But this is the key, the end of the 17th verse. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Then the first thing about heaven is we're going to be with the Lord. We're going to be in eternal fellowship with Him. In Revelation 21.3 we read, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be among them. That is the crowning joy of heaven. The tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and God himself will be among them. In verse 22 of Revelation 21, it says, I saw no temple in heaven, no temple in the new Jerusalem. He says uh, in verse 22, For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. So this central presence of God and the Lamb is the first and foremost reality of heaven. All of heaven is His temple. He fills it all. He is unconfined, and we will forever be in His immediate presence. There will be no sense that God is far off. 
but rather there will be full enjoyment of his presence. Richard Baxter, the Puritan, wrote, As God gives us glorified senses and enlarged capacities, so will he advance the happiness of those senses and fill up with himself all those capacities. End quote. So eternal, immediate fellowship with God, intimate, unbroken, satisfying personal relationship with him. Again, Richard Baxter opens to us a vital perspective showing that in this life we have nothing immediately from God. In this life everything's second hand, everything's third hand. But in the next life, this is what he writes, the things of God we handle are divine, but our manner of handling is human. There is little we touch, but we leave the print of our fingers behind. The Christian knows by experience that his most immediate joys are his sweetest joys. What have least of men and are most directly from the Spirit. In other words, that which comes most directly from the Spirit gives us our highest joy. Then he writes, Christians who are in secret prayer and contemplation are men of greatest life and joy because they have all more immediately from God himself the fullness of joy is in God's immediate presence. We shall then have light without a candle and perpetual day without the sun. We shall have enlightened understanding without scripture and be governed without a written law. We shall have joy which we drew not from promises nor fetched home by faith and hope. We shall have communion without ordinances. To have necessities but no supply is the state of those in hell. To have necessities supplied by means of creatures is the state of us on earth. To have necessities supplied immediately from God is the state of the saints in heaven." End quote. No intercessors, no mediaries, no mediators, no agents, no delivery sources. Intimate communion with God and the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing us, us directly out of that communion, everything that the bliss and blessing of heaven could ever hold. And so we will be with God and enjoy all that he is. Secondly, we will see him. We will see him. So in addition to fellowship, we will have vision. Now just briefly, let me remind you of the fact that in the experience of, of uh, people on earth, we never see God, we cannot see God. Exodus 33, God said, no man can see me and live, no man can look on my face. In uh, John 1.18, 1 John 4.12, John writes, no man has seen God at any time. Peter says, we love the one whom we have not seen, 1 Peter 1.8. And if you read uh, 1 Timothy, familiar words at the end of 1 Timothy, chapter 6 and verse 15, you read this. He will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, listen, whom no man has seen or can see. God cannot be seen. He is the invisible God. We cannot see now the glorified and visible Christ as long as we are in our human bodies, God is inaccessible to us, too holy, too pure, too spotless to see us in our iniquity while we see him. The best we can do is have a brief glimpse. Moses saw the back parts in Exodus 33. The disciples on the mountain saw the transfigured Christ and got a glimpse of his glory. But no one can see the full blazing glory of God until heaven. In the Beatitudes, 
Jesus said, and very, very directly, and could not be mistaken, chapter 5 of Matthew and verse 8, and you know this because it's in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Literally, they shall be seeing God for themselves. A future continuous reality. They shall be seeing God for themselves. The psalmist in Psalm 42, 1 and 2 said, As the deer pants after the water brooks, so pants my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And then he asked the question, When shall I come and appear before God? Even Philip, you remember, in John 14 said, Show us the Father. It has always been the des desire of the believer to see God, but it is not possible in our humanity. We see God not with the eye. We see Him with the heart. We see Him with the mind. We see Him in history operating. We see Him in circumstances. We see Him in providence. We see Him in creation, revelation, grace, mercy, love. But we don't see Him with the eye. But we will. There will come a time. Unless you think that that's not indicated in Scripture, in Revelation 22, a very wonderful promise is given. Revelation 22, verse 3. There shall no longer be any curse in the eternal state. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His bond servants shall serve Him. Verse 4. And they shall see His face. God said to Moses, you can't see my face. You'll go up in smoke because you're sinful. You're still in flesh. But the day will come when we will see his face. What does that mean? Does God have a face? He's a spirit. No. It means that we will see the full effulgence, the full manifestation, the full glory of God, the full Shekinah, the blazing light of God that shines through the eternal state and brilliantly through the jewel that we studied last time called the New Jerusalem. In uh, Hebrews 12, 14, it says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So if you are holy and sanctified, set apart in salvation, the day will come when you will see the Lord. So what is heaven going to hold for us in terms of God? First of all, we will fellowship with Him and with Christ. Secondly, we will see Him and we will see them as well. 1 John 3 says that we'll see Christ and be made like Him. We'll see the Father in His glory. We'll see the Lamb in His blazing glory when we come to heaven. Now, there's so much more that can be said about that, but I have to skip some things because I want to ask another question. Before I get into that other question of what will we do in heaven, I want to give you a transitional concept. This really fits into question number one. What's going to be our relation to God? But it introduces us to that second question. The third thing in terms of relationship to God is this. We will adore Him. We will fellowship with Him. We will see His face, and that is His full glory, as much as any, any glorified human can see. And thirdly, we will adore Him. But that moves us toward the second question. We will worship Him. 
Now, we don't really have the time, but let me give you a quick trip, and I won't take the time to do all of it. Look at Revelation chapter 4, and you'll gain very quickly an insight into this aspect of our relationship to God in heaven. Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne, that's God, and will worship him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. Chapter 5 basically says essentially the same thing in verse 8 and following, but just down to verse 13. It says, Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Chapter 7 of Revelation, verse 9. A great multitude which no one could count from every nation, all the tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And by the way, on the throne is God and the Lamb. And clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, they cry with a loud voice, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You see, this is what is going on in heaven all the time. Chapter 11. Verse 15, the seventh angel sounded, there arose loud voices in heaven. What are they saying? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who art and who wast, because thou hast taken thy great power and hast begun to reign. Over in chapter 15, the same kind of tone of worship is seen in heaven. Verses 2 and following. Uh, he sees a sea of glass mixed with fire. That's that brilliant shining light coming through that, that sea of glass that we saw described in Revelation. And there is the, uh, the victory song. They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, the great song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations, and so forth. We find in just one other note in chapter 19, similar worship. Verse 1, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the blood of his bondservants. And the second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, give Give praise to our God, and it just goes on like that. And there's the great multitude and the sound of many waters and mighty peals of thunder. The end of verse 6, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, and so forth. 
Now, all of that to say that the occupation of heaven is obviously worship. That's what we're going to do forever and ever. You remember the everlasting angel in chapter 14 said, Here's the message, fear God and give Him worship. So, what's our relation to God? We will be with Him in intimate fellowship. We will see Him in glory and we will worship Him. And that will be the occupation of eternity. Now, that leads us into the second question. And this one is fascinating for all of us. What will we do in heaven? That is always the question that people ask. What are we going to do? Are we going to sit in a corner somewhere in a cloud plucking a harp forever? What are we going to do? Are we going to polish the stones and the foundations of the new Jerusalem? What are we going to do? Shine the pearl that is the gate? Rudyard Kipling wrote, When earth's last picture is painted and the tubes are twisted and dried, when the oldest colors have faded and the youngest critic has died, we shall rest and faith, we shall need it, lay down for an eon or two till the master of all good workmen shall put us to work anew. That's good poetry. That's lousy theology. We aren't going to lay down for an eon or two a sort of Rip Van Winkle view of heaven. What are we going to do in heaven? I've heard people say to me, it won't be any fun because we can't even play basketball in heaven. Because everyone will make every shot, theoretically, and everyone will play perfect defense, so it'll be an absolute stalemate. <laughs> we can't run a race because everyone will be perfect. No one could lose. And how can anyone win if no one can lose? We can't work on our looks because we'll all look perfect. Maybe there'll be an effort to make somebody look imperfect, but that wouldn't succeed either. What are we going to do? We won't need to work to earn anything because we'll have everything. We won't do any wrong. We won't sin. We won't have to confess sin. We won't ever struggle with sin. We won't ever have anything to apologize for. Ever. We'll never have to make anything right, correct anything, clarify anything, explain anything, straighten out anything. We'll never have to fix anything. We'll never have to repair anything. We'll never have to adjust anything. We'll never have to replace anything. Nothing will malfunction. No limitation will exist on anyone or anything. We'll never have to help anybody. Can you imagine that? Nobody will need help. We'll never have to deal with Satan. We'll never have to deal with demons. We'll never have to deal with sinners. We'll never have to defend ourselves against an attack because nobody will ever attack us. We'll never have to justify anything we did because we'll never do anything that needs justification. We'll never have to explain anything because nothing needs to be explained. We'll never be sad, lonely. We'll never be hurt emotionally or physically. We'll never need to be cured, counseled, or coddled. We'll never have less than what we need We'll never be less than totally filled with happiness. We'll never have anything less than consummate joy. We'll never have to do anything special for anybody because everything will be special. We'll never grieve, never miss anybody, never love anyone specially or love anything specially because we'll love everyone and everything perfectly. We'll never have to be careful because you'll never be able to make a mistake and you couldn't harm yourself if you tried. 
You'll never have to plan ahead because there's nothing to plan for. You'll never have to watch out for emergencies. There won't be any. You'll never have to avoid danger. It won't exist. You'll never have to deal with some fear. You'll not have anything to fear. Perfect holy bliss forever with unmixed and unending joy in perfected body and soul dwelling with the Lamb and God in intimate fellowship and vision and praising Him forever and ever. Now in that kind of an environment, what are we going to do? You can't imagine just lying around for an eon or two. I can't imagine lying around for an hour or two. Heaven will be a place where we have to do something. Well, let me tell you what we're going to do. I already told you the first thing. We're going to adore God and we're going to adore Christ. That's part of our relationship to Him. We're going to adore God and we're going to adore Christ. We're going to spend eternity praising God. And it isn't going to be that it's a necessity. It's going to be the most, the most supernatural thing. It's going to be the most normal thing. It's going to be that which is the commonest expression of what we are feeling. We're going to be so exhilarated. And now remember this, we're never going to sleep. Uh, so uh, we're going to be awake forever. And all our waking moments, we are going to find ultimate fulfillment in praising God. Heaven will be so wondrous. Heaven will be so astounding. It will be so amazing. It will be so unbelievable. And God will be so amazing and astounding and transcendent. God will literally be so wonderful that we will spend forever praising Him because we are absolutely in awe of Him. And when we've been there half of forever, how long that is, I don't know. But when we've been there half of forever, which is impossible, we will not have diminished the unbelievable amazement that exists in our supernatural beings, which elicits out of us unending praise for God. Have you ever gone and, and seen some incredibly majestic scene and just been in awe of it? That would, that would be like seeing a trash heap compared to seeing heaven. You see something beautiful and magnificent and you're in awe of it, the wonder of it, the scope of it. And you say, this is marvelous. And maybe you, you, you praise God for such majesty of creation. That's nothing compared to what will come flowing out of your heart forever in the wonder of the presence of God in which you exist, the vision of God which you see. You will recognize the splendor of God and the majesty of God, the glory of God, the perfection of God, and it comes in so many facets and in so many ways, with so much variety, it will be like looking through an infinite kaleidoscope and seeing the majesty of God refracted every split second that you're in eternity, the majesty of God will come to you in a different arrangement. And as it comes to you in that different arrangement, like looking through that infinite kaleidoscope, you're going to have more and more awe rising from within you that will cause you to praise infinite God infinitely and forever. And nobody's going to have to work you up for it. When you see God, there will be a transcendent, manifest, luminous worship in the perfection of eternal love that will occupy your entire eternity.
The second thing you're going to do in heaven is not only to worship Him, but to reign with Him. To reign with Him. In 1 Peter, and I want to show you several scriptures because I think this is an important revelation that God has given us. In 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So when you're born again, you're given a living hope. What is that? Your hope is to obtain an inheritance, all right? An inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, and it is reserved for you in heaven. You have an inheritance reserved for you in heaven. Now, I believe that a component of that inheritance is, follow this, your sphere of authority. You're going to have something you're in charge of. Now, I don't know what this means. I can't understand. Maybe you're in charge of a certain uh, group of beings that are going to offer God a certain kind of praise. Or, or maybe you're in charge of a certain aspect of heavenly duty and responsibility that somehow serves God. It, it may refer to some dimension of that authority. Certainly, your inheritance includes eternal life. Certainly, it includes holiness. Certainly, it includes heaven. Certainly, it includes perfect love and perfect joy and perfect peace. But there's more. In Romans 4.13, Paul says you are heir of the world. In Romans 8.17, he says you're joint heirs with Christ. There's something you're going to inherit. What is it? What are you going to inherit? You're going to inherit some responsibility, some level of authority, some place to rule under God and under Christ and exercise some kind of authority. In Revelation 22:15, talks about heaven being a place where outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and all of that. So there'll be nobody to rule over who needs an iron hand. Nobody to rule over that you're going to have to punish. That's not what we're talking about. There'll be some sphere of authority in which your leadership is involved. Look at Revelation 22:5. It says, concerning saints in heaven, they shall reign forever and ever. They shall reign forever and ever. There's something over which we will have some authority, some kind of reigning, ruling responsibility. And again, I I don't know what that is. There is one dimension of it in 1 Corinthians 6.3. Paul says, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So in this life, we shall judge certain things. In the next life, we're going to have some responsibility to judge angels. Maybe it is then that the sphere of our authority is over angels. And we don't want to limit it to that, but certainly that seems reasonable. Now I want you to look with me at Matthew 25. And I know I'm going quick here, so hang on. Matthew 25. 
I want to teach you these things because they're, they're so desperately important to application, as we'll see in a moment. Matthew 25, verse 21. Now, you remember, Jesus is giving a parable of the talents here. And he has given these people talents. Back in the beginning of the parable, verse 14, it tells us the man went on a journey, called his servants. He gave one five talents. He gave another two talents. He gave another one. Let me just explain to you. This is gospel privilege, as the Puritans used to call it. In other words, he gave them opportunities for salvation. The first guy had great opportunity. The second guy had some opportunity. The third guy had some opportunity as well, not as much as the first or the second. The one who had the first five talents made the most of his opportunity. The one who had the second made the most of his opportunity. The one who had the third, which is one talent, made no use of his opportunity. To those who made the most use of what they called gospel privilege, they heard, they believed, and they served, he says this, verse 21, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. Notice this, I will put you in charge of many things. In heaven, somehow, the more faithful believer will be in charge of many things. Verse 23, this is the second one with the two talents. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And, of course, the one who did nothing with his opportunity was cast into hell. So here is a proportional position of ruling. I gave you five, you multiplied it, I'll put you in charge of something in glory that is suited to your level of commitment. To the one who had two, I'll put you in charge of something that is suited to your level of commitment. I believe that whatever this ruling position is in heaven, it is proportionate to our faithfulness in this life. There are unequal gifts in this life, even in the church. There are unequal opportunities. And I believe in glory, God will also sovereignly give some greater responsibility and some perhaps lesser responsibility. But no one will feel cheated because we'll all be in perfect bliss and perfect joy and all the glory will go to Christ anyway. In Luke 19:17, you have the same thing. Well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in very little thing. Be in authority over ten cities. Now that might give us a clue. In verse 18, the second came saying, Your mina master has made five minas. He said to him also, You are to be over five cities. Could it be that we're not only going to be over the angels, but we're also going to have some territorial responsibility for leading the worship or leading the praise or leading the service? We will have some Authority, So we will worship and we will lead or rule. Thirdly, what will we do in heaven? We will serve. We will serve. We will have some duty of service. And uh, there are a number of places where we can see this. In Revelation chapter 7, 
Verse 13, one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they, and from where have they come? And I said to him, You know, my Lord. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now follow. Verse 15, Revelation 7. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night. There it is. We're going to serve God for all eternity. We're going to worship Him forever. We're going to rule with Him forever and serve Him. Revelation 22.3 says the same thing. His bondservants shall serve Him. And the word for serve here is not doulos, not slavish service. It's not diakonia, not table waiting. It is latruo. And latruo means priestly service. The service of worship. The service of adoration. Now, let me give you a little insight at this point. I believe that your level of service in heaven is dictated by your level of service here. I think that's your reward. When the Bible says you shall receive a reward, I think your reward, follow this thought, is a capacity. It is a capacity for rulership and it is a capacity for service. The more faithful you are in this life, the greater your reward in heaven. It's not going to be gold chains around your neck or a stack of crowns or better clothes or a fancy room or nicer furniture. It's going to be a greater capacity for leadership and a greater capacity for service. We know the rewards will differ. Some of our works are going to be wood, hay, and stubble, and some gold, silver, and precious stones. Some will show the Lord silver works, and some will show Him gold works, and some will have precious stone works. And He'll reward every man according as His work shall be. And that eternal reward will be a capacity for leadership and a capacity for service. The greater your service here, the greater your capacity to serve God in eternity. The greater... Your faithfulness here, the greater your responsibility for authority and leadership in glory. Now, a fourth thing we will do in heaven. We will have fellowship with the Lord and worship Him. We will have authority and rule with Him. And we will have duty by which we serve Him. Notice He's the focus of everything. We worship Him. We rule under Him, and we serve Him. Fourthly, we will be continually refreshed by Him. This is very important. We have worship, authority, and duty, but it's followed by rest. There will be constant refreshment. You say, I don't know if I want to go to heaven if I'm going to have to work the whole time I'm there. If I'm going to have to be doing all this worship and all this leading and all this service. Well, I want you to notice... Just a majestic text of Revelation 14, 11. And the smoke of the torment of those who were destroyed goes up, and they have no rest day and night. Listen to me. Hell is a place of what? No rest. No rest. No rest. That's how it is. Look at verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord 
from now on? Yes, says the Spirit, that they may, what? Rest. You want to know the difference between heaven and hell? Hell is no rest, no rest, no rest. Heaven is all rest, all rest, all rest. See, now, wait a minute. If I'm praising God all the time, and if I'm ruling on His behalf all the time, and if I am serving all the time, how can there be rest? Because worship, authority, and service are in themselves the believer's refreshment, the believer's rest. What did Jesus say? Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you what? Rest. Spiritual rest. Richard Baxter wrote, Rest. How sweet a word is this to my ears. Methinks the sound doth turn to substance, and having entered at the ear doth possess my brain, and thence descendeth down to my very heart. Remember, he's writing in 1600. Methinks I feel it stir and work, and that through all my parts and powers, but with a various work upon my various parts, to my wearied senses and languid spirits, it seems a quieting, powerful opiate. To my dulled powers, it is spirit and life. To my dark eyes, it is both eye salve and a prospective. To my taste, it is sweetness. To my ears, it is melody. To my hands and feet, it is strength and nimbleness. Methinks I feel it digest as it proceeds and increase my native heat and moisture and lying as a reviving cordial at my heart from thence doth send forth lively spirits which beat through all the pulses of my soul. Rest, not as the stone that rests on the earth, nor as these clods of flesh shall rest in the grave, so our beasts may rest as well as we, nor is it the satisfying of our fleshly lusts nor rest as the carnal world desires. No, no, we have another kind of rest than these. Rest we shall from all our labors, which were but the way and the means to rest, but yet is the smallest part. O oh, blessed rest, where we shall never rest day or night, crying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabbaths, when we shall rest from sin, but not from worship, rest from suffering and sorrow, but not from comfort. O oh, blessed day, when I shall rest with God, when I shall rest in knowing, loving, rejoicing, and praising, when my perfect soul and body together shall in these perfect things perfectly enjoy the most perfect God, when God also, who is love itself, shall perfectly love me, yes, and rest in His love to me, as I shall rest in my love to Him. That kind of rest. And then one last occupation of heaven. This is mind-boggling. Look at Luke 12. This is actually shocking. Luke 12. Verse 35. Luke 12:35. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight. And be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. 
Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. That's speaking about Christ and his second coming. Blessed are those believers who will be alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at table and will come up and wait on them. You've got to be kidding. Jesus takes the human imagery of a great Lord returning to his palace. And all his slaves are there to receive him. And they invite him in to a wonderful festival. The Lord doesn't rest. He doesn't retire. He changes his slaves into kings. He makes the feast for them, and astoundingly, he doesn't order his servants to serve him, but what does he do? Verse 37, he comes and waits on them. The fourth thing that is going to occupy us in heaven is that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to serve us. This is shocking. Can heaven have a greater blessedness than that? The Lord is going to forever and ever and ever serve us. Didn't he say the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve? Incredible. What is going to be our relationship to God in heaven? Fellowship, we'll be with him. Vision, we'll see him. Worship, we'll adore him. What will be our occupation? What will we do? We will worship. We will take authority and reign with Him. We will serve Him. We will rest. And here it is. We will be honored as Christ forever serves us. I think, young people, it makes sense to look at heaven. That's why Paul said in Colossians 3, 4, Set your affections on things above and not on things on the earth. Let me do a personal inventory, all right? Listen to this and we'll wrap it up. Personal inventory. Here are the benefits of looking toward heaven. A little list. Benefit number one. You ready for this? Here's the first benefit of looking toward heaven. It is evidence of your salvation. It is evidence of your salvation. Jesus said, where your treasure is, what? Where your heart is. If you look toward heaven, if heaven holds out joy and hope for you, that's an evidence that your heart is there. And your heart is there because your treasure is there. A heart set on heaven is a heart set on God. And I believe that one who longs for heaven has good evidence of saving faith. Second, the benefit of looking toward heaven is also that it is the motive to the highest excellence of Christian character. It is the motive to the highest excellence of Christian character. This hope that I have for heaven purifies me. Someday I'm going to face the Lord with the record of my life. That purges me. Someday he's going to come and I want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so my looking toward heaven is a motive to the highest excellence of my Christian character. 
If I'm traveling to that place and only a stranger here, then I want to travel there in the purest way so that when I arrive, I have demonstrated my love to Christ who waits for me there. Thirdly, looking toward heaven is the truest path to a life of joy. Looking toward heaven is the truest path to a life of joy. David said the light of God's face gladdens his heart. You see, if you're looking toward heaven, you can endure anything in this world. You can endure any suffering, any affliction, any pain, any rejection, any trauma, any anything. Because you're just passing through. It's very temporary. I've thought of that so many times. I can remember sitting in Calcutta, India, in the middle of the summer. The temperature was 120 degrees in a city of millions of people, a filthy, dirty city. Unbelievable squalor. I was there with my family. My son, Matt, was severely ill with dehydration, and somebody had come along and uh, rigged up an intravenous feeding bottle. We took a picture off the wall in this little place we were staying in, about 15 feet off the street, where people were living on the sidewalk and sewage was running down the gutter. We were living in this little place. The walls were covered with lizards and rats running around on the floor. And, and Matt was there in dehydration and sickness. I was sick and doubled up in a fetal position. And we took a picture off the wall, hung an IV bottle on the nail, trying to get him through the situation that was initially life-threatening. And I'll tell you, all I could think about was America. All I could think about was home. All I could think about was air conditioning, food that was edible, just that little experience. And, and people say to me, well, was it tough? And I say, you know, it really wasn't that difficult because I was filling my mind with hope. And we get so spoiled. Masses of humanity live in that kind of squalor, but they have nothing else to experience or hope for. Those of us who have lived in better conditions find ourselves able sometimes to endure that because we have the hope that something better is coming. It'd be another thing if we had to grapple with the issue that this was a permanent situation. We live in this world similarly. Whatever pain and trauma, whatever difficulty and sickness, whatever stuff comes along is not of major consequence. This is a very temporary place for me. The truest path to a life of joy and being able to handle all the trouble of this world is to get your heart set on heaven. Number four, looking at heaven is also the best preservative against sin. Looking at heaven is the best preservative against sin. You say, how can that be? Because a heavenly-minded person doesn't stoop to the depth of evil. If I have set my affections on things above, then my affections are not being dominated by my lusts. Number five, looking toward heaven maintains the energy of spiritual service. Looking toward heaven maintains the energy of spiritual service. If I run slow and I work little in this life, if my service is half-baked, indifferent, complacent, and apathetic, it's because I have little regard for the prize of heaven. 
But if I have high regard for the prize of heaven and really seek to win it, it's going to impact the energy of my spiritual service here and now. Number six, looking toward heaven honors God before all others. If I live with a heavenly perspective, it means that I am more in love with God and more concerned to exalt God and more zealous to serve God than any other thing in life. It puts God in the first place. And lastly, looking toward heaven repays God. So what do you mean? He always has his heart set on us. And it's a way in which we can have our heart always set on Him. What are the benefits of looking toward heaven? It's evidence of true salvation. It's motive to the highest excellence of Christian character. It is the truest path to a life of joy. It is the best preservative against sin. It maintains the energy of spiritual service. It honors God before all. And it renders back to God the same kind of concentration that He has on you, repaying Him for setting His heart on us. Very practical. The hymn writer said, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. In other words, that's to be our focus. Well, I can only hope and pray, young people, that this will have a practical effect on your life. I want to say a word of thanks, because trying to cover this, as you can tell, I racehorse pretty fast, and I kept you for... A lot longer than I ever want to. But I can only hope that in condensing this, the Lord has given us a perspective that will be helpful. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the lesson this morning. Not really a sermon, but more of a lecture and a lesson. Perspectives on heaven. Give us that upward look, Father. That we might be the kind of people you want us to be. Don't let us love the world or the things that are in it, but help us to set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth, to put our treasure in heaven so our heart will be there also. Give these young people, these faculty and staff, a great day with heavenward perspective. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen.